Happy Holidays from the DSR Network. We are deeply appreciative of our members and the year that we've had. To celebrate the holiday season, we are offering a 50% discount on either your first month or first year of membership. Members enjoy an ad-free listening experience, bonus content for virtually all of our shows, an invitation to the members-only Slack community, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of December, you can take 50% off the membership price for the first month or for the first year. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DSRHOLIDAY at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code DSRHOLIDAY. Thank you very much for your support. Happy holidays from all of us at the DSR Network. As we all spend the holidays with our families, we're bringing you some of the best episodes from the network on some of the biggest events of the year. We hope you enjoy this look back at 2023. And please, look forward to another year of Deep State Radio. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to today's episode of the podcast. Lots been going on in Ukraine recently. We thought we should talk about it a little bit more, and to do that, we've gone back to two of our very favorite guests, General Mark Hurtling. General Hurtling is former commanding general of the United States Army Europe and the 7th Army, how are you doing, Mark? I'm doing great, David. It's great to be with you again, especially with Michael, too. Well, you know, Michael's a special guy. Michael's uh, Michael Weiss, senior correspondent for Yahoo News and the host of the Foreign Office podcast. How are you doing, Michael? I'm well. Thanks for having me back. Great. Well, I, you know, I just thought we would have a good unvarnished conversation about some of the items that have appeared in the news. This week, uh, Mark, I saw you on CNN providing a take on what, for example, this news about tanks meant. And in a minute, I'd like to go to Michael and talk about some of what he's written about how long it took us to get to that decision. But let's start with you, Mark. Is this significant? It's going to take a long time to get some of the tanks there. And I saw a New York Times article that said, looks like might be 105 advanced battle tanks if you add them all up. And the Ukrainians wanted 300, and some of the experts I saw said they need 500 to 1,000. So where do you come out on all this? Well, I think what we're talking about, number one, is both very significant contribution and the optics of it, which is providing uh, main battle tanks for both the short-term and another pledge by the United States with the M1A2 Abrams for the long term. I think both of those signal some very good support for Ukraine. Um, If people are expecting them to be a significant contributor to effects on the battlefield, there may be mixed opportunities for using these tanks. The initial tranche coming in are a relatively small number, uh, a couple of 
Ukrainian-sized tank battalions, which usually consist of about 31 vehicles, 31 tanks, they will be able to have some effect in specific areas of the battlefront. And I think the Ukrainian leadership, the general officers and their, their staffs, will apply them at the places where they most need them. But if, if you or any American thinks there, there are going to be a sweeping tide of tanks akin to a World War II offensive toward Bastogne or uh, across the, the Rhineland, they probably need to take an appetite suppressant because that's not going to happen. They will be effective wherever they are placed if the training is conducted properly and especially if the logistics support system is set in place. Now, what I'd say, David, for a, for a long time, I've been talking about the practicalities. Michael knows this. We have had discussions and debates and arguments even where we've thrown down on each other, where we've really taken a hard look at the goal that we have been attempting to drive. When I say we, Secretary Austin, is to provide Ukraine with the equipment that they can immediately use which will have an immediate positive effect on the battlefield and which Ukraine can easily sustain. So if you keep those three factors in mind, introducing some of these technologically advanced pieces of equipment like the Challenger, the Leo II, the Abrams, uh, it's going to take a while to train. And before anybody says anything, I love Ukrainian soldiers. I've trained with them and exercised with them. And this is no slight on their ability to incorporate new equipment into their battle space. But it's going to take time and it's going to take systems, the logistics systems, that they currently don't have to support these vehicles. I put a lot of stock in that. You know, throughout the course of the past year of talking about this, on a regular basis, Mark, you have flagged things that were important that other people weren't flagging and that ultimately have become part of now conventional wisdom. You talked about the training and morale of the Russians. You talked about the benefits of our training of Ukrainians for the past eight years. You talked about the focus on having good non-commissioned officers and the differences between both sides. You've talked about supply chain, supply lines, and the ability to maintain them. All those things seemed kind of unsexy when everybody just wanted to talk about nuclear weapons. And at the end of the day, those are the things making a difference. Well, I, I, I got to state, David, I'm kind of an unsexy guy, so it fits in line with my personality. But the fact of the matter is, having done these things before and knowing how hard they are in combat, and truthfully, my combat as a general officer was much less dynamic than what Ukraine is facing right now. So it's going to be even harder for them. But I did see the efforts and when I was a young major on the receiving end of technologically advanced equipment during Desert Storm in combat, which is sort of a like event that what Ukraine is going through right now, what they're going to have to execute. And that took probably about 10 years worth of U.S. Army training to get where we were to exhibit what people saw on the Desert Storm battlefield and 89 hours of offensive operations over 250 miles. But that just doesn't happen. And, you know, in, in this case, you know, I've, I've shot and I've been inside a T-72 tank, the kind of tank that Ukraine has been using and which the Russians obviously use. I've also shot and been inside an M1A2 
and a challenger and a Leo. They are worlds apart in terms of the requirement to be able to not only train a crew, but also to train your section, your platoon, your company, your battalion to provide support to one another along with infantry and artillery and air and engineers and air defense and not to get too boring, but it's hard. It's really hard. So I, what I keep going back to, you know, those three pillars, which Secretary Austin has used, can Ukraine use them immediately? Will they have an effect on the battlefield and can they sustain them? And they can use them immediately. Will, we, will they get the most out of the vehicles? Not early on. They will, there will be a, a steep learning curve even after they do train on them and they put them in combat. But the sustainment piece really has me concerned. Well, we'll come back to that because I'd like to talk about how this might impact circumstances on the ground, particularly with regarding a looming spring offensive. But let's go back to the, to the process of getting the deal cut. The Germans dragged their feet. Everybody was pissed off at the Germans. We saw the Eastern Europeans, the ones that are actually sort of border states, lead the way yet again within NATO, not with some help. The Danes and some others were quite forward-leaning. And another thing we saw, Michael, was a big push in Germany during this contact group meeting by our Secretary of Defense, who I would wager most Americans could not identify. And yet, very quietly, very effectively, he's been doing some of the hardest diplomacy involved here, and he's had some successes. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Yeah, I do. And I, I also think Secretary Austin is, is quite bullish on Ukraine's prospects, and he wants to see Ukraine succeed. You'll recall several months ago, he gave a statement, which at the time the media characterized as a gaffe and then allegedly he got chewed out by the commander-in-chief, uh, the president. I read it as something so commonsensical and logical and morally correct as to be almost laughably, you know, that, that this had any kind of scandal attached to it was, was laughable to me, which is, look, America's strategic goal here is to ensure that Russia is so militarily degraded at the end of this thing that they cannot pose a short or even midterm threat to another neighbor. Again, full stop. Now, yeah, I should say that that sounds like a very reasonable goal for Washington. It should also be a goal, even more pressingly so, for our European allies. I've spent a couple of weeks digging into what I've I've called the, the German fandango over security assistance and tanks. And look, let me just wind back the clock a little bit. Um, in fact, several decades. So Olaf Scholz, the Chancellor of, of Germany, comes from the Social Democratic Party the party that had invented the concept of Ostpolitik, the party that had been traditionally not so keen on America's security umbrella and what they would characterize as American hegemony in Western Europe, right on their side of the Iron Curtain. They looked east, literally what Ostpolitik meant, toward the Soviet Union and trying to split the difference. Olaf Scholz, as a boy or teenager in the 1980s, was a West German socialist who made many trips over to East Germany where evidently he was so aggravated by American military power in his backyard and the stationing of American mid-range missiles that according to Stasi files, which have subsequently become open source, his group 
was advocating the Soviets park nuclear missiles on America's doorstep, right? Now, I'm not saying he hasn't evolved or, or matured politically. I mean, certainly we all have since the 1980s, but it's important to keep this in mind because a lot, in the, a lot of people in the press seem to think that Germany's reluctance to do more to help Ukraine militarily, and I want to put a pin in that statement because they've actually done quite a bit, and this is one of the paradoxes I was alluding to, the reluctance is to do with World War II. The last time German tanks got this close to Russia was, of course, the Third Reich. And, and this is nonsense to me. I see it much more as a, as a hangover, a legacy of a lot of that kind of geopolitical calculation during the Cold War, particularly from the SPD. And Schultz, uh, I'm told, he's a very inscrutable figure, not terribly charismatic. He was a mayor of Hamburg, an operatic of, of the SPD in, in every sense of the word, right? But something happens after the invasion of Ukraine. He gives a speech three days later, February 27th, in the Bundestag. And the speech is, is now known as the Zeitenwende speech. So basically, he augurs a, this is a historical turning point, not just for Germany, but for all of Europe. Russia is now shown its true colors as an, a revanchist imperial power, an aggressor nation that is looking to invade European countries. Germany must take up the mantle of leadership both within and without, increase its defense spending to 3% of the GDP and basically get its house in order, right? Now, the importance of that speech, seemingly it's a great speech, but the, the kind of invisible rider to it, if you like, was that the German assumption, and I think a lot of Europeans' assumption, was that Ukraine would cease to exist within three days, right? This, this, was, this was a done and dusted affair. The Russians were going to conquer Ukraine, and, and literally the, the borders of the Russian Federation would now be that much closer to Central and Western European powers. So then, you know, the U.S., thankfully, with a president who actually cares about Ukraine and cares about the concept of Europe whole and free, starts sending lethal aid, defensive weaponry, but then increasingly offensive weaponry. I'm old enough to remember when the M777 howitzers were a big deal, and then the HIMARS arrive in July. All the while, Germany says, no, we're not going to do certain things. We won't send our own self-propelled howitzers. We won't send anti-aircraft guns. We won't send this. We won't send that. This, this is the country that was sending 5,000 helmets, right, in January, February of last year. But in fact, they say no, they say no, they say no, and then they say yes. And they end up sending quite a bit of very sophisticated, well-produced military equipment, things that the Ukrainians have, have put to great effect on the battlefield. And depending on how you, you, you sort of slice it, I've seen various think tank reports and studies. In real terms, Germany has perhaps even eclipsed the United Kingdom for security assistance to Ukraine, second only to the United States. I'll repeat that. Germany is perhaps second only to the United States in security assistance to Ukraine. But where is the fanfare? Where is the public diplomacy? Where is the publicity about all of this? Schultz is terrified or has been up to this point of his own policy. So he comes up with this statement when the, the, the debate, and we all knew Rammstein 8 was going to be about tanks. The Ukrainians were screaming this from the rooftops. MOD was very clear. The tank issue was as Schultz put it, we will not unilaterally send Leopard 2s or authorize the more than a dozen countries in Europe that use Leopard 2s to send them because there's an end user agreement or a re-export license deal that has to be certified in Berlin. Unless and until our allied nation, allied partners do it first. So then the Brits came out and said, okay, we'll send 14 Challenger 2s. Then Schultz moved the goalposts and said, no, I didn't mean the Brits. I meant the Americans, right? Abrams tanks were never meant to go to Ukraine. The White House was very clear about this. The Pentagon was very clear about this. 
all the reasons that General Hurtling just outlined for the logistical challenges. These are gas guzzlers. I mean, they run best on jet fuel. All of this, we, we've heard it. They were never meant to go to Ukraine. The reason they're being sent to Ukraine was to get the Germans to release the leopards, right? It was more of a symbolic thing that was necessitated by German and European intransigence on this issue. For Ukrainians, recognizing all of the challenges that lay ahead in terms of sustainability, maintenance, repair, being trained up, they see this now, this long-term investment that America has made as a windfall, an unexpected boon for them themselves. They were anticipating the leopards, perhaps the Leclercs as well, which is the French main battle tank, but never really fundamentally, if you got them off the brochure stuff, Abrams tanks. So now they think that America is all in in Ukraine and that this isn't just about helping them fend off another Russian attack or liberate more of their borders, but this is long-term security assistance that, you know, at the end of the day, when this war is settled on terms favorable to Ukraine, this could elevate them in stature to the, the degree of a major non-NATO ally, to name three others of, of, in that category, Australia, Japan, and Israel, right? So Ukraine is thinking in terms of 25 years in the future now. And I think America also increasingly, I mean, this, and I'm, I'm basing this on my reporting. So if it comes to light in the New York Times that all of this is wrong, I'll fall on my sword and, and admit error here. But from what I'm hearing from administration sources, a lot of the, the obstructions, a lot of the obstacles that were in place even three months ago, let alone a year ago, when you had members of our own military analytic community saying 72 hours in Kiev is toast. All of these have now fallen by the wayside. And what I mean by that is, and this comes back to the boring stuff that Mark was alluding to, the red lines that we've put in place on escalation and the provision of certain weapon systems or munitions like attackums that the Biden administration says, no way, no how, they don't need them, it, it's, it, it'll piss off Putin too much. I'm hearing now, actually, that's not a problem. We're not worried about what the Russians say they're going to do or, or will really do anymore because we've called their bluff time and time again. They say, if you do X, we'll do Y. We do X, they do nothing, right? What the real issue is, it's a supply chain issue. It's an inventory issue, right? We're running out of these stocks in our own country. We're, the CIA has gone around Europe trying to find every little scrap and morsel of 152 millimeter shells for Soviet made artillery systems. I mean, these things run dry. It's, this is, as, you know, this is the, the pragmatics of war. Which is a, a, a seismic shift, again, in how America sees not only Ukraine's long-term prospects and viability, but also how it now judges the Russian threat. And by the way, this policy change, even though it's, it's happening quietly, is undergirded by very credible, solid intelligence. You know, Toria Newland let slip several weeks ago, and this didn't get much media attention, but I pay attention to it. She, she basically said, we have convinced Putin that should he do anything with respect to WMD, tactical nukes, it's game over. And, and forget about what we would do to him. The Chinese will cut and run from any kind of strategic relationship with, with Russia. Now, that's not to say the nuclear threat is still not a very powerful deterrent. Not to say that you know it means NATO, the gloves are completely off and we're encouraging the Ukrainians to strike inside Russian Federation territory or march on Moscow. But there does seem to be a dawning awareness that the Russians are more bark than bite when it comes to what they're threatening to do. And that has, has led the United States to increasingly climb up the escalatory ladder with respect to this war. Let's pick up on that, Mark. Michael has laid it out there in, in some detail. And we read these stories and we 
see some tanks are going over, but the Abrams aren't going over for six, eight months, and there's going to be training issues. And the first of the, even the Polish tanks, which may get there sooner, it's still going to be a matter of a number of weeks and perhaps a couple of months to get people trained up. And we hear that there is a a Russian spring offensive in the offing. There were earlier announcements of striker vehicles and Bradley vehicles, which I saw you commenting on, but a lot of those aren't going to get there for a long time. Are we cutting this too close? Are we giving them the way I I describe it, and I and I and I think it's based on some of the assumptions that Michael was just talking about that we we now know better than. But I think we went into this with kind of just-in-time support. Like, let's give them as much as we can, you know, up to what they need, but not more than that. And we've sort of incrementally crossed a bunch of the red lines the Russians have set, and turns out that they were bluffs. Is it time now that we start saying, no, when we go into war, Powell Doctrine says overwhelming force? We need, because it's in our strategic interest, to provide Ukraine not just with sort of just enough, but more than enough in order to tip the scale here. You know, David, I got to push back and say I think it's a false premise that we've given Ukraine just what they needed just in time. And I've heard that repeatedly. There has been a, a monumental effort to get the kinds of equipment based on the essence of the fight that was going on at the time. You know, there are a lot of people that will say, well, gee, we should have given them all this equipment in 2018 when they first asked for it or 2019. But having served in Europe and and know what the condition was of the Ukrainian government and their military, you know, it, it would have been risky to do that, even presuming there wasn't going to be a war in the future. But when the war did break out, I think the amount of stuff that we gave was within the capability of us giving it. I mean, I've said a couple of times in in kind of a flip way, there's no military Walmart store where you just go in and clear out the shelves and deliver things. You can certainly do some things fast. But again, in each phase of the operation, Ukraine was pretty much engaged in the fight. There wasn't the ability to say, hey, we want to give you a tank battalion right now. How about peeling off about 900 guys and sending them to Grafenbeer and start training on these tanks? Because at that time, tanks wouldn't have done them a whole lot of good. It may have prepared the force for the future, but Ukraine, like I always say, was pretty busy at the time. They were asking for a lot of things, anticipating what might happen next. And some of those things were put in the pipeline And I know people will scoff at this, but they were put in the pipeline relatively quickly. And they were geared toward exactly the kinds of things that Ukraine needed. Not all that they wanted, by the way. And this is the discussion that Michael and I have had on several occasions. You don't always get what you want, but we can give you what you need right now. And also, and I'll put this, what you can handle right now. I don't think that figures in the Rolling Stone lyric to which you're referring to. (laughs) It should have been. You know, for for those saying no fly zone, give them F-16s and A-10s, you know, hundreds of of MRSs, you know, those kind of things take a lot of time. 
I mean, the the I'll, I'll compare it to the U.S. military. It's not like someone asked me yesterday, how come if the Abrams tank is so difficult to logistically supply and so hard to train on, why do we use it? And my answer was, well, I mean, it's not like we just dropped it in the middle of the U.S. Army and said, start, start, you know, here's the keys to this tank to crank it up and start, you know, killing people. Uh, it, 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 it took about 10 years for the United States military to do a transformation uh, from the big five, the Bradley, the tank, the artillery pieces, the, the Patriot and the, the helicopters, the Apache and the Blackhawk. It took about 10 years to modernize the army, establish a new doctrine, get the logistics in place. And then by happenstance, there was this little rumbling called Desert Storm, where all of the things that we had been doing for 15 years were proven. What Ukraine is asking for is sort of what Poland asked for. And it's taken Poland a, a couple of years to do this. I was at the, uh, in Europe at the very early stages of Poland's transformation. And they were asking for all this equipment too, the difference being they were paying for it. And it's taken them a good 15 years to develop what I think is probably the best army in Europe outside of the US. So, you know, what the difference in Ukraine is they have asked for us and Western nations to build them a transformed army right now, giving them all the equipment, not them buying it, and with getting it from the entire NATO and some non-NATO countries. That's hard to do in a time of war. I want to build on that. First, this is the point in the podcast where we take a little bit of a break, say thanks to those of you in the general public who are joining us. We hope you've appreciated this conversation and that you want to hear the rest of it. And the way to do that is to become a member. Go to the dsrnetwork.com, click membership. It's about five bucks a month. And you get a lot more content and a lot more insights like these insights. And you can't get them anywhere else because most most places don't provide the deep dives. In fact, most journalism is going towards how can we make this shorter at a time when you need more expertise. And so our, our, go, our goal is to get a little bit more in-depth, and we hope you'll support that. For those of you in the general public who are not yet members, thanks for joining us. For those of you who are members, stand by. So, Michael, we've we've all, we've got you know ten fifteen minutes here. So I'd like to ask you guys a, c a couple of questions. You know, Johnny Carson used to have a joke that was the shortest measurable amount of time in the universe was the time between when a stoplight turned green in New York and somebody honked their horn. And I think that that may be rivaled now between the time. New weapon systems are approved for Ukraine and when they ask for more. And immediately upon the approval of all of this, even with Zelensky saying thank you and so forth, they were saying we need more tanks. But also, let's go back to this discussion about advanced fighter aircraft. And so that's now the, the whole discussion now. Uh, based on the conversations that you referred to earlier, are those things on the table? Are we likely to see? ramping up in that respect as well? I'm in various chat forums. I know General Hurtling is with people who are kind of working the file on American security assistance and weighing pros and cons of doing various things. And yeah, I mean, th there are a couple of Air Force pilots in, in one of my groups who say that 
you know, the, this is the the next big question. Do we give them? I mean, look, it, combined arms warfare consists of four things, three of which start with the letter A, right? One is infantry, one is armor, one is artillery, and the third is air power. Well, they have their own infantry, right? They have artillery, thanks to us and allied nations. Now they're getting the armor. So, ta-da, what's the missing piece here, right? So they think that if we give them modern Western-style airframes, this is going to improve their capability. I'm inclined to believe I mean, look, from what I understand, and General Hurtling can correct me if I'm wrong, which I'm sure I am to some degree, there's a baseline for training up on any airframe, right? To become just proficient, meaning you can fly the thing and land it and maybe conduct sorties, assuming it's not terribly contested airspace. But to become really expert in an airframe can take anywhere between seven to 10 years, right? Now, the good news is, Learning how to fly an F-16, if you've been trained up on a MiG-29, for instance, is not as hard as, for instance, putting me in the cockpit of an F-16 and, and trying to teach me. And, you know, already there's been some some talk. I mean, to give you the one example, you know, we, we talk about Poland and how they've created this brilliant military in Europe. Well, one of the, the, the funnier aspects of, of digging into that, remember that whole flap about should the Poles and will the Poles give 20-plus MiG-29s to the Ukrainians? Joseph Burrell, the foreign minister of the European Union, basically shot his wad by saying this is going to happen. And then there was this whole internal, you know, debacle within Warsaw. Well, when I was reporting on that, what I found is one of the reasons that the Poles had initially been reluctant to give up their MiG-29s is the Polish Air Force prefer their MiGs to F-16s. They consider the MiGs to be more like uh, comfort food. They're just better trained on it, right? Because this is going back generations. Their technicians know how to repair them and maintain them better. I think there was an air show at some point in Warsaw where MiG-29s squared off against F-16s and the MiG-29s were actually more successful. So there is this, I don't know, there, there is this, this big question. I don't think they're going to get F-16s in the immediate future. I think what's more likely to happen is they will get the airframes they're more accustomed to. So MiG-29s, there's already been reporting. I don't know how valid or legitimate it is that the Poles have begun to send these things under the guise of spare parts that they're basically you know, disassembling them in Poland and then having them reassembled in Ukraine. The the Slovaks have a fleet of MiG-29. I mean, doing that, I think, is probably a better short-term solution for Ukraine than inaugurating a, basically an entire new air force, right? However, coming back to my earlier point, if we are thinking post-war, and I don't think that's premature, right? I, I think we have to plan for the next five years, the next 10 years in terms of what NATO and the West strategic relationship with Ukraine is going to look like, then yeah, it it is not beyond the realm of plausibility that at some point we could see Ukrainian pilots in F-16s, right? But, you know, coming back to General Hurtling's point, it's just about doing what is necessary today and tomorrow takes precedence over doing what would be great to see, you know, a year, two, three, four years down the line. The stuff that they wanted as of I mean, I remember, and, and I, I shared this with General Hurtling at the time, in April, I was in Ukraine, and a source in military intelligence sent me a shopping list. These are the things you would like. And everything on that shopping list, I remember General Hurtling saying, oh, you know, this is not, they don't need this right now. But as of today, everything on that shopping list, with the exception of attackums, they've got. HIMARS were there, NASAMs were there, hell, even cluster bombs were there, which is something we didn't want to give them, but guess who gave it to them? The Turks. So. The Ukrainians have a way of, uh, you know, 
realizing their ambitions. Well, let me let me pick up on that. Mark, we've just discussed what we've given them, and you've made a argument that uh, that we are keeping up with their capabilities um, and their battlefield needs. Is there another puzzle piece that needs to be put into play right now? Yes. Do we what 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 is it? I think it's a combination of what Michael just said in terms of we should be and we may be, I'll just leave it there, training uh advanced aircraft systems. But you know, it's interesting because the common guy on Twitter or on the street will say, give them F sixteen, give them A10s right now. And just like tanks that are part of a a system of systems with infantry and artillery, like Michael just said, aircraft are part of a system with jammers, refuelers, targeters, folks that come and rescue you if you're shot down. So it's it's more than ju- and the ability to knock out the enemy's air defense system as well. So if you give a bunch of F-16s without the thousands of hours of, of training that Michael talked about, you're probably going to have a lot of pilots, unfortunately, dying of lead poisoning. The second thing I would say, and, and it's becoming increasingly important, the requirement for a, a Navy, or at least a coastal defense force, in my view, will become increasingly significant. I don't understand why, other than their lack of ability, Russia has not attempted to do an amphibious assault into Odessa to extend their line of operations. We're past that time now, but that was probably one of their early plannings that they never got to, but had it happened, it would have it would have extended their lines, probably caused them a whole lot more trouble, but it would have put uh, Ukraine at a disadvantage in terms of facing four different directions. So I think the Navy has not been as involved as they should have been. Uh, you know, when I say Navy, I'm talking about the NATO Navy in helping this re- in these requirements. I think the Air Force, uh, NATO Air Forces, especially the U.S., is seeing the requirement to transfer from the MiG-29s that Michael talked about, which are, I'm not a pilot, so I'm going to be talking through my ass here, an airplane that goes by hydraulics and a whole lot of ancient systems to one that's a fly-by-wire that is exceedingly maneuverable and can, can drop different types of weapon systems as well as knock things out of the sky. It's a whole different ballgame with an F-16 as a MiG-29, just like it is between a T-72 and an Abrams tank. And I, if I could just add to this, look, MiG-29 is not a bad aircraft, right? And, and the Ukrainians are, are, are very familiar with it. And what they've managed to MacGyver onto it includes things such as advanced U.S. weapon systems like the HARM anti-radiation batteries, which are able to fire and basically block Russian radar and suppress air defenses. So there's a lot they can do with their current fleet. And you know things that, that surpass, for instance, what they were able to do with Soviet-era artillery as compared to Western artillery and long-range rockets that we've given them. You know, David, can I, can I address, because it's come up a couple of times, the attackums issue and give a, a different perspective. The first thing I would say is I'm all for uh, the need for long-range rocket systems to, heat, uh, to strike deep behind enemy lines. The challenge we have is this. Any kind of Ukrainian, overt Ukrainian attack, let's put it that way, with a U.S. weapon system behind Russia border, Russian border. And I would include in that behind Russian borders, even though I don't believe it's part of Russia, into Sevastopol or other parts of Ukraine, would be seen as not a Ukrainian attack across Russian borders, 
but a U.S. attack. Now, let's go one step further because these are the kind of deliberations that go into the middle military circle. Not only do you potentially fire a long-range missile across Russian border, good. If you hit a great target, if you hit an airfield, knock out a couple of uh, backfire bombers, wonderful. God bless you for it. But imagine the dynamics if a U.S. missile, which we supplied them, goes into Russian territory and instead of hitting the airfield, hits a Russian apartment building. And there are hundreds of Russian citizens killed in that strike. That then becomes that you know, I hate to use the escalation word, but it becomes an escalation that I think the president and Secretary Austin are trying to avoid where this is no longer a, a Ukrainian-Russian war that we're supporting. It becomes a Russian-U.S. war, and it will expand significantly to include the potential use of nukes. But even even this line, you know, the Ukrainians have been pretty disciplined about not using, for instance, HIMARS to fire inside Russian Federation territory. They could do that, Right. I mean, this argument about giving them the, the, the range or the distance of ammunition that, that it can travel being kind of the issue. It, it, I, I always found this to be slightly misleading. I mean, you could take a Sig Sauer pistol and march up to the border of Russia and fire inside Russian Federation territory. It all depends on where you station the platform. But they've been pretty disciplined. But there have been exceptions to this rule, right? The Russians have recovered debris of the harm anti-radiation batteries that I alluded to earlier in Belgorod which is Russian Federation territory north of Kharkiv. And what's interesting about this is the Russian Ministry of Defense has said nothing. This all turns up on social media, on Telegram channels, and the Ukrainians don't admit that they fired them. And more to the point, the Pentagon in the United States doesn't say, well, that's it. We're not giving any har- any more harms. So, you know, I, I, I totally appreciate this kind of, we have to draw a line somewhere because at some point the Russians will say this has now become a direct NATO confrontation. But you know, one of the big mysteries of this war, which nobody has has figured out to at least my satisfaction, is what hit Saki Air Base last summer in August, right? That was a major operation deep behind enemy territory. This is southern Crimea, okay? And it had direct consequences. Number one, it was an hour-long barrage of something or other. If you believe uh, Valery Zaluzhny, the commander-in-chief of Ukraine's armed forces, it was missile strikes. He wrote this in a, in a paper that kind of got buried, but I found it. And in the space of an hour, it took out more than 50% of the Black Sea Fleet's naval aviation group. And then it had another knock-on consequence, which was little noticed at the time. Most of the Black Sea Fleet relocated from Sevastopol to Novorossiysk in mainland Russia, right? Because the Russians were terrified that Ukraine has some new wonderwaffe that can, can strike in Crimea. What was the Russian government response to that operation? It didn't happen. To this day, the Russian government says that was an industrial accident. Someone was smoking a cigarette next to a fuel depot, and all of a sudden, this mili- this airbase just went up in flames. So again, and this this is to the point that I made: the longer the war goes on, the more, just by sheer, you know, the, the nature of warfare and the improvisational nature of it. I mean, the Ukrainians and Ukrainian special forces have conducted cross-border raids into Belgorod using, you know, helicopters. I mean, they've blown stuff up commando style, right? Again, not seen or, or there's no direct retaliation. I mean, the, 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 air, the, the, the cruise missiles and the Shahid drone strikes on civilian infrastructure, more to terrorize the population and to force the Ukrainian electorate to try and sue for peace because they were going to be frozen out this winter, et cetera, et cetera. But the, the, there has been no direct correlation between what the Ukrainians have done of their own volition and probably mostly using their own weapon systems and certainly their own personnel 
inside Russian Federation territory with a dramatic escalation. But to Mark's point, I mean, yes, when America gets involved indirectly simply by supplying ammunition that the Russians are able to figure out came from Uncle Sam, that sort of changes the nature of things. Well, I mean, there's a legitimate question. Does it change the nature of things? I think we're a year into this, and most of the assumptions we had a year ago uh, have, as, as you said, Michael, been proven wrong. And I think we're gradually changing our assumptions, not only about what might trigger a response from the Russians, but what the Russians might be capable of doing and what they would expect us to do, because clearly the unity and the the depth of the response from NATO is not what they counted on. In any event, that's something that we've got to keep an eye on. In the last two minutes that we've got here, Mark, uh, I've I've several times made reference in this conversation to a spring offensive. What is that going to be and look like? I think it's going to be fast. As soon as the Bradleys, Strikers, Gepards, Martyrs, and all of the infantry carriers like the AMS, AMX-10 from France and others go through a training approach, it has the potential for being a very powerful and light, quiet, fast-moving mobile force, with or without tanks, by the way. Tanks would help. Even a smattering of tanks could create a type of strike force for the Ukrainian army, but they've got to put it in exactly the right place to shock the hell out of the Russians. On the other side, I've commented multiple times, I know Michael has too, on the inability of Russia to regenerate a force uh, after the initial two phases of this campaign, I'm up to phase five. Right, fa- excuse me, phase five right now, and whatever happens next in February, March, April will be phase six for me. But each phase has been very different. Russia has maintained their desired strategic end state in each phase militarily. They have gone about it in horrific ways and killed a lot of people. They have attempted to regenerate their forces on at least, by my count, four occasions and failed miserably to include, I'll, I'll even say, regeneration by bringing in masses of amounts of the, of, of the Wagner group under Pergoisen to try a different technique. They can't sustain that. Uh, this so-called mobilization, and I'm not an expert on that. I've, got, I've been talking to some experts that are uh, much more knowledgeable about what Putin can draw within his society, I don't think they can generate the numbers he's talking about in any capable form that would be equipped, trained, and ready to integrate into the fight. So I don't know what Director Burns told President Zelensky a few days ago, but I'm sure he gave gave him some options of what Russia could do and what we're seeing on the ground that they might do. But from a military perspective, I continue to remain completely unimpressed with the dysfunctional elements of the Russian army, no matter whose command they're under. So I think a combination of part of Ukraine's success, I got to say this before we end, a big part of Ukraine's success, like any successful army on any battlefield, is their enemy really sucked. I mean, it's lucky to have the Russians as your enemy right now. And I, I think you know I've said that from the very beginning. So I don't think the next phase, phase six, as I'm calling it, is going to be a whole lot different. And I think Ukraine continues to have the capability to do a lot more 
combined arms maneuver, as Michael said a minute ago, and be more successful in parts of their battlefield and regaining ground. You know, somebody once said to me when I was going into the government, a former cabinet official, the secret to job success is picking the right predecessor. I, I, and I, th- I think you could probably make the corollary that the secret to military success is picking the right enemy. If they're bad enough, they're bound to make you look good, right? The other phrase that I always like to use is the greatest distance on the battlefield is the six inches between the commander's ears. And on one side, on the Russian side, there's nothing in there. On the Ukrainian side, they continue to amaze. No question. And by the way, I was at a dinner last night with a bunch of very senior former DOD officials, military officers, CIA folks. And one of them made the point that more people left Russia as a result of the mobilization than actually mobilized. Without question. And, uh, you know, look, I mean, the, the, the problem we have is Putin is convinced that the longer the war drags out, the better his chances are of dividing this Western coalition. You know, he, he can afford to wait for elections to unhorse leaders who have been quite hawkish and, and confrontational toward Russia. I mean, Estonia is facing an election, which is no sure thing that Prime Minister Kayakalis will be reelected. And she's been one of the most outstanding leaders in Europe on this issue. The other thing is, he doesn't care about the lives of his compatriots. For him, it's just raw meat into the grinder. And he thinks that he can essentially overwhelm Ukraine sooner or later, just by throwing people into the country. And I mean, look, the Ukrainians are not terribly frightened by the sheer or the disproportion in, in populations or the, the sheer number, the mass that, that Putin is, is trying to corral. I mean, if you look at the videos that came up during this fo- first wave of mobilization, you were seeing like pensioners using rifles that they probably wielded, not even in Afghanistan, but who knows where. I mean, <laughs> some of them might have been World War II veterans. I mean, it was a shambles, right? And the Russian government admitted it was a shambles too. So I don't see where this bright, shiny new army is going to come from. And by the way, they, they're, they're running out of stocks on ammunition, both low grade and high grade. I mean, depending on who you listen to, you know, they are able to evade sanctions to some degree and through probably black market trade, get the electronics for some of their missile capacity. But it's not, they don't have the inventory that they started this war with, you know, and, and eventually things are going to reach the point of diminishing returns where they cannot expend the same firepower today, in fact, or yesterday, excuse me, after the tank disclosure came to light, the Russians bombarded Kyiv and other cities in Ukraine. According to the Ukrainian military, they managed to intercept 47 out of 55 cruise missiles fired at them. It's an 85% interception rate. Pretty good. And it's getting better all the time, thanks to bolstered air defenses provided by Austin and others, right? So at what point do the Russians simply run out of the stuff that they would need to take Kyiv or to do mount any kind of successful offensive. Um, and look, I have to be honest, I mean, a lot of people in, in now the U.S. intelligence community that I'm talking to, very optimistic about where Ukraine might be a year from now. I mean, you know, you, you, you will have read the New York Times piece that all of a sudden the U.S. has decided, let's help make Crimea in play. If the Ukrainians can't fully liberate the peninsula, let's at least help them neutralize it or take the fight to, to the Russians in a place that had been off limits for the last eight or nine years. 
So again, I, I, I'm, I'm taking the long view on this. In the space, you know, Lenin said that sometimes you have weeks where nothing or decades where nothing happens and weeks where decades happen. This year has been several decades sort of combined into the space of what, 11 months and, and counting. So you have to take the, the, the long view on this. I think that Ukraine's chances are very good and growing better all the time. And, and indeed, you know, the, the political concomitants of the war, integration with Europe, they will become a member state of the European Union. Whether or not they join NATO at this point, to my mind, is almost moot because they have done single-handedly what NATO was founded to do collectively with NATO armaments and, and equipment and intelligence, right? Uh, again, for all the tragedy and misery and suffering, Ukrainians that I'm talking to are now more forward-looking and more confident in their future than they have ever been, which is no small feat. No small feat and uh, do uh, in an enormous part beyond the courage and um, intelligence leadership of the Ukrainians to the support of NATO and the U.S. We're going to keep following this. Fortunately for us, we'll be able to keep following it with uh, access to minds like those of General Hurtling and Michael, and uh, hopefully we'll have them back again soon. And because the comments and the insights they offer are so great, hopefully all of you who are in the audience will join us again soon. Until then, Thanks and bye-bye.